Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. All right. Unity and Hinduism and Buddhism. So we're going to cover two chapters uh, in one Sunday message. So um, I hope you fasten your seatbelt because that's going to be quite a bit. Uh, we had the Imam speak last week, and uh, so we're just going to combine those two. But it's actually a perfect combination because it really allows us to talk a little bit about how unity is not just Christian, as many may claim, but it has a lot of Eastern influences, uh, mostly thanks to the studies that have been done by Charles Fillmore, co-founder, and bringing some of those influences in the ideas and the teachings that we have. So we're going to f continue with uh, John, um, Paul John Roach's book, and we're going to See, Unity covered two chapters, pages 65 to 110. And we're going to, let's see, it's not helping me here. All right. Um, we're going to go through some of our uh, religions again. So we have Hinduism at the very beginning. Again, don't take these times as a given. There's many different opinions how old religions are. And like I mentioned before, every representative of their religion believes, often believes that they're the oldest religion. Okay? But Hinduism is definitely the older than Buddhism because Buddhism ultimately came out of Hinduism to an extent. And here we just have the list of all the different religions we're going to talk about throughout the series. And here they are grouped together. So on the top right, you see Hinduism, Jainism, and Sikhism, which is covered in the chapter about Hinduism. And then we have Buddhism together with Shintoism, Confucianism, Taoism, not so much because they're heavily related, but because they all come out of about the same time period, too. And we're going to cover Taoism next week. So far, we have focused on the Abrahamic traditions, which is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And as you've learned over the past few weeks, there's some similarities that those three religions have, and some of those similarities we also find in unity beliefs and teachings. But now we're moving eastward. Now here's a pop quiz. Which one of these symbols Left to right represents Hinduism. Left, left, correct. So therefore, the right one is Buddhism. Right? Hinduism is represented by what's known as the Om symbol. And I will talk about the meaning of that symbol in a little bit. And Buddhism is represented by the wheel. You can call it the wheel of karma, the wheel of, you know, there's different names for it 
It's a wheel that has eight different spokes on it, and I'll talk about those in a bit as well. So from the perspective, not necessarily from here, but from the perspective where Judaism, Christianity, Islam started with Abraham, we're looking at Abrahamic religion that more or less a Western religion, although that's not true anymore nowadays, because all those religions are represented around the world, but heavily represented in the West. And then we have Hinduism and Buddhism heavily represented in the East. Again, because we're now becoming more and more a multicultural family around the world, this becomes less and less true. So let's begin with Hinduism. In Hinduism, one of the the primary understandings that we need to have is about those gods, right? Because it creates often a confusion. What about all those gods in Hinduism? The three main gods, also known as the Trimurti, or Trimurti, the Trinity, are Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Brahma representing the creator, Vishnu representing the preserver, and Shiva representing the destroyer. Now, this, the destroyer sounds so awful, but it's actually very similar to crucifixion and resurrection, whereas Shiva destroys, it's crucifying what no longer serves us, and then Brahma creates again, while Vishnu just maintains, maintains the world, preserves the world as is. So we have these trinity here in Hinduism that kind of explains how the world works on a big scale, but also on a smaller scale. But that's not enough. There's more gods, and even that's not all of them. So we have the wives of the Trimurti, Saraswati, the wife of Brahma, Lakshmi, the wife of Vishnu, and Parvati, the wife of Shiva. And what you see in parentheses is what they stand for. Sarasvati, for example, is the goddess of knowledge, music, and arts. Lakshmi is the goddess of wealth and prosperity, and Parvati is the divine mother. So they all have meanings, and that's also one of the reasons when in Hindu culture, which is very complex, by the way, I mean, you can't really say this is Hinduism. It's absolutely impossible because, first of all, a lot of people in the world follow Hinduism, and they have all different opinions about how to follow that particular religion. There's no top in Hinduism. There's no pope or no uh, world organization that says this is Hinduism. There's so many different flavors, it's basically impossible to describe what it is. But some of, some of the things are commonalities. On the bottom line, you see some of the main major gods that you may have seen or heard of. Ganesh or Ganesha, the remover of obstacles, or Hanuman, the devoting power. A devo he's representing devotion. He was a devoted to Rama, the uh, seventh incarnation of Vishnu. And then we have Krishna, the eighth incarnation, incarnation of Vishnu, following Rama. Also, Krishna, known as one of the major gods, one of the major representatives of Hinduism. 
But we're not stopping there. In one of those sites, this is a temple, the Menakshi Temple, or Menakshi Amon Temple in Mandurai, which is in South India. This temple is one of the very few temples in India that are devoted to a female god, Menakshi. Menakshi stands for fertility and love. And that temple has thousands and thousands of colorful statues, each one representing gods. Depending on who you're asking, Hinduism knows tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of gods. Now here's the question. Does Hinduism follow polytheism? Polytheism means the belief in or worship of more than one god. So we have all these many gods, and we know that in many sects of Hinduism, some of those gods are being worshipped more than others. But does that mean that Hinduism is polytheism? That they have no understanding of one god? Before I answer that question, this is a representation of all the Catholic saints. In my opinion, the way I see it is that often in the Hinduism practice, all the gods are only seen or very similarly seen as saints. Like we have patron saints for anything, for love, for good crops, for animals. It's similar idea of gods. What are saints? They're expressions, divine expressions of the one God as are those many gods or deities in Hinduism, expression of something bigger. Even in unity, we use the apostles as the 12 powers. In a way, we're doing the exact same thing. God is transcendent, inexplainable, and in order for us to relate to that, it's helpful to maybe relate to the apostle Peter who represents faith. So when we are in a crisis of faith, we may use the stories of Peter to give us inspiration in order to overcome that challenge. So we actually have a lot of similarities depending on how you look at it. Does Hinduism deny the one true God? That's another question we could ask. Often, when we are not familiar with a religion, we only look at it from the outside. And Hinduism is often mistaken as polytheism. Oh, they don't believe in one God. They have all these gods that they worship. And again, we worship saints. We worship apostles. We worship uh, you know, spiritual teachers and so on. Doesn't mean that we don't believe in something much bigger than that. And here is where the Om symbol comes in because it allows us to actually explain how the Om symbol is interpreted. Om, first of all, is actually not just a two-letter word. It's a three-letter word because O is actually, it's a diphthong, a combined, combined sound, com a combination between A and U that sounds like O, Om. 
But in order to explain this symbol, you want to actually understand that ohm is AUM. Why? Because each, each letter here represents the Trimurti. A for Brahma, which is creation. And when we pronounce in Sanskrit A, it's actually said like this, ah. That's the sound of creation, ah. Ooh, ooh, which is the second sound, is Vishnu, is preservation. It's a long sound, ooh, ah, creation, ooh, preservation. And then the last one, Shiva, mmm, mmm, closing creation, ending creation, A-U-M. And that's what we actually say when we say Om, the primal sound of the universe, we say all these things together. Om, creation, preservation, and destruction, all at the same time. So how is it in the symbol? <clears throat> we have this, looks like a number three, and then a half circle. And when you have the half circle on the top left, that represents the waking state, or ah. The bottom circle on the left is M, the destruction, dreaming. And then on the right, we have sleeping state. In other words, the bottom part of this symbol, that three with that half circle, or those three half circles, represents our senses, our world of sense, and our three-dimensional way of being. But the diamond, then, represents our fourth dimension. Fourth dimension is something that Charles Fillmore uses. He considers the fourth dimension to be the kingdom of God, or the ultimate truth, or God itself. Okay? And in Hinduism, we have the same thing. We have Brahman. It's called Brahman, or truth. That's the fourth dimension. But there's a little swift there in between. Who knows what that could be? Some of you studied symbolism. Illusion. Illusion. Thank you. Maya. Maya is a Sanskrit word for illusion. So we have the three-dimensional world on the bottom, the world that we live in, the world of senses. And we have Brahman, which is truth. It's God as transcendent being, indescribable, very similar to unity. And then we have the illusion in between. And this is why the Eastern religions tend to talk about illusion quite often, that this is just an illusion. The way we perceive the world, especially when we perceive it as negative, we need to learn how to see truth. So I ask again, does Hinduism not know a one God? What would you say? It does, right? It just calls it something else and refers to it differently as well. Okay. So, theology. Theology is this scary word, but ultimately is just how we relate to the idea of there being something greater than we are. On the very left is theism, which considers God to be separate from the universe. 
independent. God does his own thing, he or she or it. Mother, Father, God doesn't matter, but it's separate from the universe. Create the universe, but still acts act into the universe. And then as soon as we go into the Eastern philosophies, it gets a little bit more complicated. Pantheism, panentheism, process relational panentheism, and you don't need to remember all that. But what's really important is to understand that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam traditionally follow a theistic model where God is perceived as separate and independent from us. Whereas in Hinduism, when you follow the Om symbology or read some of the scriptures, it's actually somewhere between panentheism and process relational panentheism where God is even bigger than the universe. God is bigger than all of creation. And then on the top, on the very right, that infinity symbol, that represents our relationship to that. The infinity symbol means that there is a constant relation to that God. So there's very different approaches to God, isn't it? On one hand, we have separation. On the other hand, other hand there's no separation at all. But what about Buddhism? What theology does Buddhism follow? Anyone knows? They don't, right. Buddhist, Buddhism doesn't follow a theology whatsoever. The Buddha never really officially said that there is a God. The Buddha also doesn't teach about God, not even about necessarily the soul or how the soul creates spirit and things like that. Those teachings are either very rare or later on, but there's no clear theology behind it because in Buddhism, the focus is on practice. And here is <clears throat> just an example of the story of Buddha. One of the things that illustrates why Buddha never really was concerned too much about whether there is a God or how we relate. And let me be clear. It doesn't mean that Buddha didn't believe in God. It just means that there is not a clear teaching that came from him. This tapestry or representation represents Buddha as a child. Siddhartha Gautama, which is the name of the, the Lord Buddha, was born into a caste system, the caste system of the warriors. He was born, some would say, to a king. Others say, wasn't a king, was just a higher up in, in a clan. And, but his father and his mother, especially his father, decided that he needed to be raised like a prince. And he was raised in this palace with these high walls around it. And he was protected from the suffering of the world and from illness. The father didn't want his son, Siddhartha, to know that there is illness and death in the world. He didn't want Siddhartha to know that there is suffering in the world. And so he was raised in this protective environment. His mother, Maya Devi, um, she was actually more of a princess and the queen than his father ever was. She had this dream on the night of conception of Siddhartha 
that a white elephant with 10 trunks entered her right side. And the meaning of that dream was that Siddhartha is either going to be a great king or he's going to be the king of the ascetic. Either a great king of the caste, of the warriors, or a king of those who have been, in a way, outcast of the ascetic people. Now, the mother wasn't really too invested in where to go, but the father really wanted him to be the king. And the reason what happened later was that Siddhartha just left the palace and went for a ride and realized there was suffering in the world and there was death in the world. And then his companion told him, yeah, and you are going to die too. And he was kind of shocked about this because he was raised differently. And once he realized the suffering, he left everything. He left the palace, he left his wife and his son, and he started on his journey until we now know he eventually sat down at the body tree and reached enlightenment. But that's one of the reasons why he never really worried too much about is there a God and how do we relate to God. He was worried about ending the suffering. And that's important for us to understand, to understand Buddhism. One more thing about the Hinduism faith is these are 10 incarnations of Vishnu. I talked about Rama and Hanuman. Krishna is the eighth incarnation, just at the bottom there in the middle. And it is said, again, not in all Hindu traditions, that the Buddha was actually the ninth incarnation of the god Vishnu. The tenth incarnation is yet to come. The tenth incarnation is Kalki, who is supposed to eliminate all evil in the world. Very similar to the second coming of Christ, where just everything, all evil disappears. But it's interesting to understand that, again, not in all Hindu beliefs, but in some, Buddha is an actual incarnation of Vishnu seen as the same as Krishna, who is seen as one of the major gods, as Rama, and all the other incarnations that have come before, which gives you a hint that Buddhism came out of Hinduism. Just as Jesus was a Jew, the Buddha, or Siddhartha, was a Hindu. He followed the Hindu traditions and may have rejected them, but he was in that Hindu culture, that caste system. And that's how Buddhism came out of Hinduism. So we have the wheel of Dharma. Dharma means either truth or teaching. And one of the major teachings in Buddhism is right, 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 eight times right ways of being, the noble truths, the noble practices, you hear that often. And here is eight ways of being right. In a way, it's connected to the righteousness in Christianity, to right thinking in unity, to think right, to feel right. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, all practices in Buddhism heavily focused on doing rather than thinking about stuff, right? 
So Buddhism is not a theology, but a teaching. It's a philosophy. It's a teaching about how to be, about how to end the suffering in the world. And there's many different teachings that they have. And if we wanted to put Buddhism on this graph, we can't because Buddhism doesn't have a position officially where to put it. So we have to kind of put it outside of the whole theology because it doesn't concern itself with that question at all. So what about unity? What theology does unity follow? And here um, you might find differences even among unity ministers in how we interpret where the theology is. In my opinion, and some of us in the unity movement, we believe that unity is all the way to the right. We believe there's no separation in God, which is theism, all the way to the left. We believe that God is greater than the universe. It's indescribable. It must be greater than the universe because even the universe, as big as it might seem, it may still have limitations we don't know. But we especially believe that there is a relationship between God and us, which we call that oneness relationship. So if you have ever taken a membership class, I explained this a little bit in more detail. It's definitely something to consider. Remember, no one in here is asked to change their belief system. You're welcome to believe any of those systems or no systems or nothing at all, but here is where you see often unity is coming from. Process relational, creation theology. We are creating with God. We are actionable with God. Or like how I like to say, we are the activity of God. God is, and because we become active, we and God create. So how do we see this through the lens of the five principles, just like we did all the other religions? So we already covered God nature, unity's first principle. Hinduism, one God, transcendent, indescribable, Brahman, right, truth. Buddhism, no speculation about God, focuses on Dharma, teaching or truth. And unity, one God, one power, and we call it sometimes law or principle. God and us, how do we relate? How does Hinduism relate, Buddhism relate? In Hinduism, very clearly, almost exactly the same. And again, I can't speak for Hinduism as a whole. I'm just using one flavor here. Is God equals us, us. The capitalized us means the spiritual us. The smaller us means the human us, right? And unity has the same thing. God equals us. There's no separation. We cannot be separate from it. Now, are we God? That's the paradox. Are we God itself? No, but we are God also. So it's kind of like something we struggle with, right? So that's what we have there. In Buddhism, no speculation about that at all. No speculation about God, therefore no speculation about how we relate to something we don't speculate about. Very simple. And then in Hinduism, God, spirit, human, inseparable. Same in unity. 
inseparable and eternal, talks about soul and spirit. In the writings, you see it all the time happening, all the time popping up. Buddhism, not so much. Doesn't necessarily, there's some scriptures out there that may talk about soul and spirit, but in, in the ground, in the foundational teaching, it's not relevant again. But what is relevant is the three marks of existence, which is impermanence, eternity, suffering, life is suffering, and there is this idea of no self. And you can see there that the no self is very similar to finding unity or finding oneness as we let go of the self. So you start to see that, that unity actually has a lot of those Eastern influences here when you see it through the first two principles. Our impact, unity's third principle. In Hinduism, <clears throat> just change your mind. Change our minds and feelings. That's all we have to do. Realize truth, which is Brahman, which is that diamond in the Om symbol. Conquer illusion, which is fight the illusion between us and the truth. And then end samsara. Samsara is that endless cycle of birth and rebirth. It includes the suffering, the death, and so on, to enter moksha. Moksha is the Hindu word for enlightenment or awakening when we exit that cycle of birth, rebirth, and suffering. In Buddhism, very similar in a way, changing our minds and hearts at the very core of the practice, there is a right way of being and the right way of practicing. And then again, ending samsara to enter nirvana, which is the same thing as moksha, just a different word. So it's about ending the suffering, ending the restriction to become awake. In unity, change our minds and hearts, same thing. Align or not with God, our decision. Remember our true nature, which could be connected to Brahman. Remember the truth and awaken the truth, heaven on earth. Realize heaven right here and right now, which is similar to ending samsara. So you see some similarities. And if you break it down to this simple level, which is obviously not going to give justice to all the intricacies of any religion, you will find that most religions are actually not as far apart from each other than we often believe. And what you also find is that how we practice those religions can be severely different, dramatically different to what the actual religion, religious scriptures tell us. The tools we use, fourth principle, Hinduism, prayer, meditation, gods, multiple gods as inspiration, like the saints, right? Scriptures, the Vedas, Bhagavad Gita, Upanishads, etc., and then rituals. Often we find some really beautiful rituals in Hinduism. Buddhism, same, prayer, meditation, also scriptures, mostly focused on the Lord Buddha's teachings and some of the followers, and then practices often combined with rituals. In unity, prayer and meditation, very big, right? Denials and affirmations, 12 powers, 
quite significant, similar to saints or gods, if you will. And then learning, we are kind of still learning to bring in rituals. Unity is not really uh, traditionally that fond of rituals, so what we're doing here at Unity Fort Worth, we just kind of go against the grain a little bit and we bring in some of those beautiful rituals because it's just so uplifting to, to uh, do them. And then finally, we must take action. Fifth principle. Hinduism, call to action, be good, related to karma, and realize the truth, let go of illusion. Buddhism, call to action, be and do right, realize truth, end of suffering. Unity, call to action, end separation, unite, realize truth, forgive sin, and sin in the context of we made a mistake not in the context of original sin, not in the context of repentance in the traditional sense, just we made a mistake, let's let go of that mistake and do better next time, which is what the Jewish traditions are following as well. And then we have lots of other stuff, like in Hinduism we have Ashtanga Yoga, or the Eight Limbs of Yoga, work written by Patanjali, um, a saint and an important teacher. And I'll usually talk about this throughout the year, so you probably see some of the things like yamas and niyamas, and you have heard these words before because they're relevant. In Buddhism, again, we have the wheel of dharma. Those are kind of the practices, and that's how we call to action in Buddhism and in Hinduism. And then finally, when we compare West and East again, where would we put unity? And again, if I ask, call a friend of mine and ask him where would you put unity, he, might, he or she might say, well, it's all the way to the west. My opinion is it's somewhere in the middle. It's somewhere where we appreciate our tradition, the New Thought tradition coming out in America with a strong Christian foundation, but at the same time, the openness and the willingness to absorb some of those Eastern philosophies and teachings, which in my opinion, moves unity a little bit to the right here. And then when we look at Sufism and Baha'i, which is out of Islam, I would probably say they're also going a little bit more into the middle because they're the mystical branches of Islam. And then in Jainism and Sikhism, we stay pretty much in the East very consistently with subtle differences as there is a connection. And with that, we got through two chapters in a little bit more time than I thought, so hopefully that was interesting. And as always, because it was a lot of information, we're just going to move right into meditation and take some time to absorb.
So take a moment and become present. And find yourself with allowing the same energy to come in as with we did with prayer today. We're humbling ourselves not by closing off, but by opening up. We allow those divine energies to move in. In meditation, we have a chance to break through Maya, the illusion, and find Brahman, truth. We are already practicing the wheel of Dharma. We're seeing it rightly. We think rightly, feel rightly, we act rightly. And we find that peace that passes all understanding. Find the unity in all those teachings. So take a deep breath once more and envision for a moment a lotus flower on the top of your head. The lotus flower is a symbol that's used in both Hinduism and Buddhism. A symbol that stands for many things, love, perfection, peace, glory, prosperity. Just imagine that lotus flower to be on the top of your head, a thousand leaves strong. And just quietly, just for a moment, I want you to touch with your mind's eye one of those leaves. Just give it a gentle nudge. and see how it starts to spin. Out of a thousand flower petals, one of those petals is spinning right now for all of us. So we keep looking at that image, the image of the lotus flower with the one spinning petal. And we imagine for a moment what we can do right now to let go of anger and resentment and fear, to let go of anything that stands in the way for all those petals to spin, a thousand petals strong. What can we do? What can I do to follow truth, to live the Dharma, to become one? So just as we nudge that one pedal, we have the power and the ability to nudge them all 
we awaken to the glory of God. We allow the Spirit to fulfill who and what we truly are. And we become whole. So let us take a moment in silence and allow that image to be and then dissolve. Allow ourselves to sit in contemplation as we find the peace and the silence within. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org.